Hey everyone, welcome back to Cart Overflow. I'm your host, Gen Furukawa. And today we have Andrew Math, who is the founder of Blue Tusker, an omni-channel e-commerce marketing agency. And also Andrew, I thought maybe we could talk about some of your experiences in the weeds owning an e-commerce brand as a one-man shop. Andrew, how's it going today? Doing good, how you doing? All right, fantastic, fantastic, thanks so much. Yeah, so real quick, if you could just give a quick background on what you are, what Blue Tusker is, what, what kind of like brought you here in your 15 years of marketing experience. Yeah, you kind of you kind of led with it. So yeah, I've been in marketing, digital marketing for 15 years in next month, so in August. I originally started, I've, I've pretty much been in e-commerce the whole time. I originally started in e-commerce. My father owned a, he acquired a company that was strictly retail and wholesale. And then he actually took that online and kind of did that whole nine. My fun story with him is he was one of the first people to get invited to sell something other than books on Amazon. He turned it down. So super fun to pick on him for that. But then pretty much in and out of e-commerce for a while, I started an agency when I was in college, kind of basically dissolved that after a little bit, but then started an agency in 20, late 2016 with a partner of mine. We exited that in late 2019 early 2020, started Blue Tusker. Blue Tusker is a full service digital marketing company for e-commerce sellers. We tend to focus on an omni-channel presence. So someone who's on Amazon, helping them kind of diversify because obviously Amazon is, is Amazon. And, or, you know, they're on the website, Shopify, e-commerce, whatever like that. And then they want to kind of expand into marketplaces and we help them essentially develop marketing strategies that assist across all of the areas that they may have their products available. And then I'm also the host of the e-com show. So I have my own podcast where I interview other e-commerce sellers and basically find out how they got to where they are today. Yeah. Awesome. And then the one part that, that you didn't touch on, but I was curious about is you ran a brand yourself or, or currently running a brand, an eight figure e-commerce brand just by yourself, which sounds like it'd be a pretty good testing grounds for, for what your marketing agency can provide. But can you shed some light on that? Yeah. So close. I didn't own the brand. Uh, I worked with, I worked in-house at two different brands that were eight figure plus brands. And I was the sole marketer in the house. Got it. So a lot of times when you see an e-commerce company that is eight figures plus, especially at the ones I was at, you have usually three or four in-house people and then countless contractors across the board. And because of my experience in the agency space, I was able to basically make that as efficient as possible to the point where I was the only one in there. And then we had maybe two or three other contractors that did stuff that like, I'm a horrible designer. So if you gave me Photoshop, I would probably make it explode. But outside yeah. of that, that was kind of the, what I was referring to with that. Yeah. So how does that work? And, I, and I'm always curious about this and I've seen it. I mean, this is kind of like the model that Shopify enabled and, and the glory days of paid ads where you can kind of like get some nice branding, some packaging assets, design assets, and then kind of like spin up a marketing flywheel of sorts with paid mm -hmm. ads. But when you're doing it yourself, I imagine operational efficiency is super important. Capital efficiency is super important. But what, what are you prioritizing? What are you thinking about in terms of using your limited resources to run everything with one person, maybe some outsourced help to, to manage eight figures in, in annual revenue? The, the biggest thing was always organization, right? And then just efficiencies from those, that organization. So like for, you know, in between jobs, I served in different restaurants over the years and you learn how to juggle, like, you know, however many tables you got and you got all these things going on. And I was able to kind of take that skill set, And then as time went on, apply it into marketing. So I became really good at marketing operations and figuring out 
how to structure a marketing department so that things can get quickly done. And then it all comes down to automation. So it's knowing which platforms you can set up to a certain extent and then just let it kind of do the work. Because honestly, in my opinion, once you get a majority of the pieces in place of the marketing strategy you're looking to get into place there, once you're able to kind of set that up to be automated, then it really comes to most of your focus is either research or just adjusting some of the paid ads, at least from the parts that you weren't able to automate. So like I would have been a HubSpot partner for at this point, like, wow, almost like six or seven years, I think. And so a lot of that comes into just leveraging a platform similar to that and doing what I can to just make it work itself. Yeah. For email, for SMS, I mean, I imagine a lot of that is like you set up your core flows, right? You have your, your welcome flow. You have your, your abandoned cart, abandoned checkout, product description page, or you know, your, your core flow is there. Same with SMS, paid ads. I assume you like identify your main keywords for search and then your creatives for Facebook, Instagram. But how have things changed, you know, say post iOS 14, where CPA might not be as, as efficient, as profitable. How has it changed maybe from your perspective with Blue Tusker to where you're prioritizing your resources or how you're advising brands to prioritize your resources? I mean, advising brands where to prioritize kind of comes down to the brand because there's there, we are, it's, it's hilarious how many times someone will reach out to us and be like, hey, I need help with this. And a lot of times I find that the biggest problem with a lot of companies like ours is they'll be like, okay, we can do that. And we'll help you with it. But they never actually ask, why do you want help with this? And most of the time when I speak to someone, it's amazing how many times I'm like, okay, I can help you with this, but I don't think this is going to work. And here's why. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times you'll get brands that like, we work with a lot of apparel brands and a lot of them think that they need to do Google ads. And while there's a level of it that I understand it's so crowded and there's so there's such minimal real estate for certain terms that you can't really showcase anything because obviously for apparel, it's kind of like beauties in the eye of the beholder sort of thing. So you might be able to drive the traffic, but if they just don't like what you're selling, they're not going to buy it. And that's just up to a design aspect, not necessarily a functionality or an aesthetic. So or not aesthetic, but the way the shirt feels, but like, it's kind of stuff like that where it's like you you want to guide them towards what they should probably be doing. And from what I prioritize now, it always depends on where the business is at. Like if they have a, if they have a decent structure, it's already set up and they're already up and running and they've kind of got a process down and now they want to hone in on it a little bit and probably reduce those CPAs. Now I'm really starting to push SEO. So as of the recording of this, you know, we're more or less on track to be in a recession. We have some ridiculous inflation. Supply chain is a complete nightmare right now, and it still hasn't really resolved. And people kind of thought it would be better by now. And so one of the things I've been talking about is paid ads is going to bring you in that money quick. And everyone's realizing that. So that's causing seems to go up. And obviously we're going to go into Q4, so it's going to get worse. So by focusing on an SEO perspective and having a nice little funnel set up there, If you start it now, six, 12 months down the line, you're going to thank yourself because you're getting that traffic and you're building an asset where like with paid ads, you're renting the space with SEO, you're going to own it. So if you decide one day, I'm going to stop working on SEO, I'm going to stop writing all these blogs because I got to cut back a little bit, it's going to continue to help you. But if one day you're like, I can't afford paid ads anymore, you're screwed. Like then your ads are off. So it's, it's building the asset to kind of 
expand in longevity, but it also comes down to where the business at at the time. And if that's a smart move to focus long-term versus short-term. Yeah. That, that kind of like was what I was thinking when you were talking about your experience in the restaurant or, or even in a kitchen is you just want to start the thing that, that will take the longest. And if you have like a waterfall chart, like whatever will take the longest time is what you start with first SEO being the first thing that, that might take longer, you know, maybe like six months or so to start showing results. Yeah. But I'd love to learn more about the process of how you're identifying what, what keywords to target, what, what content to put out, what your potential customers are looking for. And maybe in the example of your apparel brands, you know, like if, if they're selling like, say, you know, athletic shirts or, or athletic mm-hmm. wear, how would you create an SEO campaign and initiative to get benefits of SEO that translates to dollars. So I love to use that example. I literally just did this this morning. So we oh have a, a seller we work with. He sells, uh, it was originally just collegiate apparel, but now he's getting into like NFL and, and, and NBA and all that stuff. So he's kind of sort of like a bit of a fanatics competitor sort of. Sure. And so from an article perspective, Every time I talk to a seller, the first thing they think of is like, okay, you know, we have a ton of, I don't know, Chicago Bears stuff. So let's do an article about the top Chicago Bears t-shirts and we'll list them all. And I hate that approach because it's so, it's, it's, I don't know the word I want to use here, but it's selfish. Like it's basically, it's so self-fulfilling that you're not really providing any value. And plus the search volume behind that is minimal. Typically when someone does that, they're trying to rank for something like Chicago bears. You're not going to do that. You're not going to beat out ESPN or anything like that. So you want to find ways to actually use your SEO, use your article specifically to write topics that are just relevant to what your audience might be interested in. It doesn't have to be a sales pitch. My thing is more of find your audience, have them come to you and provide value to them but make sure you have your features lined up in your articles and different funnel things that you have after that. So a lot of times we'll end up working with a seller and it always is really interesting to me that you'll go to their blog and it's the worst case scenario. It's all copy and there's nothing else. And it's like, yeah, we wrote this and there's like 500 words on it. And that is not, it's not going to help you. It's not going to do anything. So there's structural stuff. If you want it to have value, most of the time I suggested a minimum doing like 1500 ish words but then break up the copy. Like don't make it big, bulky, bulky paragraphs, put in some imagery, like make it more interesting, give it some flavor when you're talking and like figure out your brand voice, who you're talking as, because you need to know who your customer is. So you want to know who you're talking to. But then the thing that we've started to do to basically optimize these blogs is a lot of people think like, obviously they don't want to run ads on their own site. We're not doing Google AdSense. That's not what the business we're in but why not make your own? So we actually will make our own like CTA looking display ads when in reality, it's just an image and it links over to certain products that we might have referenced within the article. Then off to the side, you might have 10% off your first order or, you know, there are actually apps on Shopify now where you can have like an add to cart button directly on the blog. So if you're talking about a certain product, that's right there. They can add to the cart and just go straight to the cart. So we're doing what we can to bring in a relevant audience, but then make sure we have all the extra bells and whistles on the product pages to actually get them to convert because organic traffic is awesome, but it's a vanity metric. It doesn't do, it's not paying your bills, but your organic revenue is going to keep you in business for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, of course. But then if we, if we get more specific with that, say like, all right, we have, we have an excess of Chicago bears inventory. Let's sell mm-hmm. it. Like what, what might some 
topics work without being too pushy, too transparent with like trying to move inventory? And, and what tools are you using to identify customer interest? Um, well, from that perspective, so we're SEMrush partners, so I use that thing all the time, but we also okay. went ahead and got Ahrefs and, and uh, Screaming Frog and Moz. Like we basically got all of them. And because one of the things we realized was, you know, SEMrush would say one thing, Ahrefs would say another, Moz would say another, and they weren't like wildly different, but in some cases they may be. So You're talking about like crossed, search volume? Yeah, search volume, keyword difficulty, cost per click estimates, like all that kind of stuff. It was always like most of the time they're relatively close, but every now and then I'd be like, how do you have this and you have this? So what we started to do was as we're doing our research, we'll actually pull research from each of them, compile it all into one place, and then actually take an average across all of them. And so we'll look at a certain keyword, the search volume for each, all three of the major players, and then the average and kind of understand what's actually happening there. Cause you can't always rely on the average, but gives us a general statement. But from there, so let, let's use a scenario. So we're doing a, let's see, influx of Chicago Bears stuff. All right. So what I would want to do is I would want to figure out where is the majority of the Chicago Bears fans. Chances are they're in Chicago, although there's a lot across you know the country. There's a lot. There's mostly in Chicago. So what I would probably do is I would think about it. And honestly, if you got an influx in inventory and you're trying to get rid of it, SEO is not the way to go because it's going to take a while. But let's just go with this anyway. I would do a lot of content around like the best stuff to do in Chicago that might be near the stadium. Or I would do weird questions that people ask about the Chicago Bears that like ESPN's not covering or anything like that. So, you know, how many Super Bowls Chicago won over X amount of time or something along those lines, you can figure that stuff out from the search volume. And while it might be relatively low, you're going to start getting in some traffic from something there that it might be relevant. So it's just kind of looking at what questions are a bit of a long shot. If you're going after something specific, like a, like a specific team like that. Yeah, that that's really interesting. And it's not really even like focusing on a customer intent per se, or a specific search query, but like thinking from a customer experience, like what, what is interesting to this particular per persona or individual mm -hmm. or visitor. And so, yeah, I, I really like that approach there. Yeah. You could also do like the top sports bars in Chicago. Chances are it's someone around there who wants to know who the top sports bar in Chicago is. And they're a sports fan. You're taking a guess that they're a Chicago's bear fan, but if they are, you're going to showcase all your products in front of them on that article. Yeah. Now I'd love to ask a little bit more of your, like your marketing philosophy or how you're positioning your services, Blue Tusker and why you've kind of like planted your stake in terms of omni-channel and why omni-channel marketing is going to be so important. And I think it's like, it becomes clear when you're in the customer's shoes and you're, you know, you're maybe getting a touch point on, on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever. But like, if you can explain the value or the importance of omni-channel marketing and then how that translates into like the e-commerce marketing strategy. Yeah. So I have a theory on where I think marketplaces are going to end up. Right. So if you if you look at the way that physical retail was, right, we had these massive big box stores for years, you had Walmart, Kmart, Target, all those guys. And that was basically where everyone shopped. And then all of a sudden there was right before the e-com thing started taking off, there was this shakeup and it was go shop with mom and pops, go to go help your local stores. And they started a whole like local, shop locally thing and all that. And then e-com started to take off. And what happened was everyone started to go to Amazon. 
And then it was like, well, actually it was originally eBay and then it was Amazon. And then like, you know, they're, they're now going to these large places where they can get and in like anything that they want. Right. The problem is, is with eBay and with Amazon and with somebody in Walmart, you're starting to get a lot of these knockoffs, like just cheap stuff. You don't really have a lot of insight into it. People have figured out how to rig the system enough that they can rank high enough or they can have, you know, X amount of reviews and they don't really care if they get suspended because they'll just go back and do it again. Like they've figured out that system to kind of rig it a little. And so what I've started to see, and in fact, we're even working with a couple now where it's people that are starting their own marketplaces. So they're not starting their own e-commerce, like D to C brand. They're starting a marketplace for a specific niche. So fishing, marketplaces or sports only, or we have someone who does like, it's all, what's the word I can use? Like social justice, not social justice, but like they all have a cause behind it, right? Like yeah. that you can select, like, I want to shop this type of product that's eco-friendly sure. or this Maybe type like of product mission by driven. a woman-owned business. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Something like that. So I'm seeing all these like little tiny marketplaces pop up and I have a feeling what's going to end up happening like you get like a Wayfair or a Chewy where it's, they all of a sudden, one of them takes off because they found their niche and it's doing well enough that we're starting to see more and more of them. And so one of the reasons that we wanted to do Omnichannel is because at a certain point, you're going to have to be on most of them, right? At least the ones that are relevant to you. So now you've got your products all over the place. And one of the things is a lot of sellers for very obvious and justified reasons, want to spend most of their advertising dollars driving traffic to their own website. I completely understand that makes a lot of sense. The only problem is, is with the, how fluid the shopping experience is and how basically the customer funnel kind of works now. And I learned all this from watching my wife shop for years. And I learned that, oh my God, this is actually how people do this. She'll get an ad on Instagram. She'll go to their website. And if it's not, uh, if there's something that doesn't really catch your eye and it's not like a nice, nice, well, well enough, it's not a good site. Right. Or maybe it just doesn't have enough reviews. She'll actually leave and go to Amazon to see if they have better reviews and things like that. And so I realized, and I've done this with sellers before we've done this experiment where we'll actually increase, let's say Facebook by 10%. Obviously you want your website to revenue to increase by 10%. But what we started to see was your website would increase by seven or 8% but your Amazon would go up. And so what was happening is we started to realize people were hopping from their site to Amazon. And we've also seen, and I've seen this from my wife too, where she'll actually go to Amazon. And if it's a newer product and it looks great, but maybe it doesn't have enough reviews, she likes to leave and do her own due diligence to see how their website is or how their social is. So she's kind of doing research into the brand. And because these sellers are, are going to be, they're solely focused on their website. They're not focusing enough on just providing a great experience for the consumer. So for years now, past five or six years, one of the things I've always talked about and I've implemented with a handful of sellers is underneath your buy now button, incorporating like an available on Amazon or available on Walmart or eBay, or we used to have jet we'd available on that. And so it would give the, the consumer the option to go shop wherever they're most comfortable. Obviously, you want to have all the different bells and whistles on your website because your margins are going to be better on your website. You want to keep that data. There's justifiable stuff to that. But you can track each of those button clicks and start to actually cater some of your advertising to that person to just keep sending them back to Amazon. Or maybe now you know they went to Amazon, but you can now start running ads to them 
to basically say like shop on our site and here's 10% off to give it a try or something like that. And so for a while I was like, I know this is how this is going. This is how this is going. And then it was like two, I think it was like two or three months ago where I was like, ha, I knew it. So basically Amazon came out with a buy with prime button that you can now implement on your website. It's a piece of JavaScript that will immediately take someone directly to their listing, but automatically like it speeds up the process. It skips the listing and kind of takes them straight to the, straight to the cart. So basically what's happening is Amazon's realizing we're getting people from their sites. Let's make it a little bit easier for them and just give them a direct button. And so I actually think from an omni-channel side, having your advertising be catered towards wherever your customer is just more comfortable shopping, convince them to keep shopping with you. Don't fight them so much on trying to get them back to your site. However, you still can go through all the bells and whistles on in your packaging and have your, you know, your warranties or your discount when you shop with us again, sort of thing to get someone who shopped with, let's say FBA over to the website. So there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of manipulate it and get it to come around. But that's, that's what we do is figure out what's the best strategy to get people to shop where they're most comfortable, but obviously incentivize them to come back to the site. Yeah, that, that's a, a fascinating and, and a lot of foresight thought there. And it actually did click for me as well when I was buying from, and I set up my Shopify, like Shop Pay, where it's basically the equivalent of one-stop shop or, or one yeah. buy with one click because it's all pre-populated. And if it is a Shopify store, then that data is already there. Payment info is already there. Very quick checkout. And there was an interesting stat, and I think it's, I forget the exact numbers, but the in aggregate, all merchants on Shopify would, if accumulated, would amount to like, you know, maybe a second or a third biggest retailer in the US or in the world or something. In the world. I, <laughs> I, I should I should have that. But basically the gross merchandising volume of merchants on Shopify is so huge that to aggregate in markets like you're suggesting totally makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And and in terms of like that buy on Amazon. So you, you suggested a couple ideas to get a customer to kind of like register, quote unquote, with you or share their contact information because anything purchased on Amazon is kind of like protected by Amazon. So that customer data, you, you can't reach out to them. You can't do a post-purchase follow-up. Um, mm -hmm. Can you describe in more detail how you kind of like close the loop on that omni-channel part? So if it does go outside your purview in terms of how you can access that customer data. Um, mm. What are the ways that, that you could work around that? Well, as soon as they click that button, if you're tracking it, you can obviously start running ads to them to incentivize them to at least supply an email. So even if you reduce some kind of gated content or something like that, if they clicked on that button, they were interested enough in your product to take the next step, which means if you incentivize them with anything, there's a really strong chance that they're going to want to take that. But now let's say they've clicked the button, they've gone to Amazon, they checked out there. So <laughs> the one thing that we always cater to is your the way that you showcase your imagery on your website, your product images, the way that you speak on your website, the way that you structure pretty much anything should be as replicated as possible on all of your other marketplaces. So when they get there, they're still confident that this is you. Like there's a lot of brands out there and it always shocks me because it's actually some of the really big guys like Nike's. Sometimes I go to their listing. I'm shocked at how bad they are, but the Nike listings are just like, here's the shoe, here's some information and that's it. Whereas you go to Nike's site, it's big, it's flashy. They have all these call outs for all the different products and stuff. And what you want to do is have that be the same across the board because it'll allow the consumer to feel much more comfortable that way.
<clears throat> excuse me, but closing the loop on after they purchased kind of a gray area. Cause sometimes, you know, I've got a lot of sellers that are like, yeah, it's totally fine. We'll do it. And technically it's a little bit against TOS. So not everyone's a huge fan of it, but if you have a product that has any kind of packaging, so like, which most do, if you put something inside of that packaging, Amazon does not know it's there. They don't open up product. They can't like, they, I mean, they can, but they don't like, they don't go through every single product to find out if there's a flyer in there or something like that. But a lot of companies, they can still offer warranty programs. They can offer like we've done, like not like a membership club, but basically like an exclusive early access club sort of thing. And all you have to do is send them back to a landing page and they sign up there for, I've got people we work with now where they'll create a warranty program. And really all it is, is getting people from Amazon to come back to their site, to submit their information. We've got some people that do like exclusive groups. So it's like a QR code on a flyer that gets them back to their website and it signs them up for an email, but they get alerted if something's going on sale early. Like they, you know, there's a bunch of extra stuff that you can do that way. It's kind of the easiest way to close that a little against TOS if you go through exactly what they say, but I've never seen anyone get flagged doing it in my, what, six years, six, seven years of doing that. Hmm. Now, all of this comes down to kind of like capturing and using the customer data. You're, you're a big proponent of a CRM and making sure, I guess, that, that there's structured data so that you can use it to communicate, obviously. <laughs> Be curious to know like how you set up a CRM, maybe the tech stack that you recommend, whether it is like a customer, a dedicated customer data platform, or maybe like Clavio is moving towards that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how you're using a CRM to manage all of this omni-channel customer relationships. I love HubSpot for the basically the CRM aspect of how deep it can get from a sales perspective. If you're a B2B e-commerce seller, it's a no-brainer. Like you you have to. It's the smartest thing to do because you're going to it's still sales. Direct to consumer and HubSpot has actually gotten mad at me for saying this before, but it doesn't it's a little bit overkill a lot of cases. The biggest benefit of it is from a D2C side is the customization aspects. So from a landing page, if someone lands on your, on the landing page and they're an existing customer, you could have it say, you know, hello again. And that would freak you out, but I don't usually suggest it, but it does have that capability. So there's a lot more personalization from it, but unless you need like a running list of exactly what your customer has done, then I don't usually suggest it. So Clavio, something like a gorgeous, those two work really well together. HubSpot's awesome and it keeps everything in one place, which is kind of why I like using it. If you have any B2B aspect or you're working, even if you have a wholesale backend and, or you're working with retailers and stuff, then it's still great because it's keeping the log of everything going on there, in which case you might as well get it for your D2C side. But otherwise, if we're talking like regular D2C, you know, B2C business, I'm I'm going to say I love Shopify, Clavio, and Gorgeous. Interesting. Okay. I, I was not expecting Gorgeous in there. I thought Gorgeous is more of like a kind of like inbound support system, but it can be more for proactive and, and it obviously yeah. integrates closely with Clavio and Shopify. Yeah. That's the thing is like finding the stuff that integrates really well. I just think that, honestly, I don't use Gorgeous that much myself just because we're not so much on the customer service side. 
but it integrates well enough that you can eventually see in either gorgeous or within Clavio, you know, a backlog of what that specific customer has received, what they open, what they haven't opened text they've got stuff like that. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Now my last question is next steps in, in kind of like getting ahead of the curve in terms of omnichannel, because things are changing. People are shopping more on mobile. TikTok's obviously a hugely exploding channel. Where are you suggesting that your clients look to get ahead of the curve um, in terms of where, where customers are consuming and buying? Oh man, that's tough. Honestly, like it, it all comes down to knowing where your customer is and having a presence there. I'm also not really a big fan. Like it's kind of different from a marketplace versus social media. So social media, know where your customer is, have a presence there and do a great job at it. Otherwise don't do it. Like you're hurting your brand. Like I would rather tell someone to pick a platform and focus on that one only, get it down, understand the process, what works, what doesn't, then move on to the next platform. Don't try all of them at once. Like way too many people are like, I know I need Facebook just because I need it. I know I need Instagram, but I also know I need TikTok and we should probably have a Twitter. And because we're apparel, we should have Pinterest. And it's like, look, I can absolutely do this stuff, but you're testing all of these different platforms at the same time to try to figure out what works. And just fiscally, that's not responsible. But from like a marketplace perspective, in my opinion, I don't know why you really wouldn't be on all of them at this point. I mean, it doesn't really hurt. You really only pay in most, in some cases, if you're, if you've made a sale, right. Amazon, you have FBA. It's a little bit different. obviously if you're getting warehouse fees, in which case you might want to actually do that. But if you want to just have a presence, just do FBM and keep it your own way. Fulfilled by merchant. Yeah. Yeah. You get a lot of people that will go over there and it's really with Amazon. It's really easy to find out because all you have to do is get like a helium 10 or a jungle scout, see if there's any search volume for your brand name. And if there is, I would immediately put my product up there. If I was like, I don't feel like paying Amazon right now. I don't want to deal with all that. Then I would just keep it to FBM. But if you've got enough search volume, you're going to convert better at FBA. You'll actually be able to run some ads and then do that approach. Yeah, I love it. And, and it, it scales. And then we use like what you're talking about, remarketing or, or capturing, tying them back with a... a, a yeah, oh geez, I'm totally blank on the term. Basically a coupon or warranty. Yeah, like um, a postcard thing. Post, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Andrew, thank you so much for this. This was like really interesting and eye-opening in terms of like the channels and tying them all together. What, what would be the best place to to connect with you or, or learn more about your omnichannel services? Bluetusker.com. Everything's up there. All of our social is at Bluetusker. It's B-L-U-E-T-U-S-K-R. There's no E in Tusker. And then all of my socials at Andrew Math. Ping me. I'll answer any questions you got. Uh, and then e-com show. It's always fun to listen to other e-commerce sellers and figure out where they messed up so that you don't. I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Andrew, thank you so much. Hey, boy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And that's the episode for today. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. We love you for it. If you found anything valuable at all or want to share your feedback, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also just drop us a line, hello at cartoverflow.com. We'd love to hear your feedback or suggestions so we can cover it in a future episode. All right, see you next time.